0: Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, we have Vitalik on once again, what topics do we cover?
1: Yeah, we cover three of his most recent blogs on his Vitalik.ca blog. These are all fantastic reads. And in order to help amplify Vitalik's message and try and get out what he's trying to get out, we go through each of these blog pieces together. We start with his recap of 2020 and his forward-looking, kind of his forward-looking predictions into 2021. Uh, That blog was particularly interesting. That's how we start the conversation. We move into his blog post called An Incomplete uh, guide to roll-ups. And he kind of helps us unpack what it is to be a roll-up, how we as an Ethereum uh, L2 scaling community landed on roll-ups as a construction and why, why they are so powerful. And then we also get into the topic of social recovery wallet. So these are all relatively three different uh, topics, but I would say they are all forward-looking uh, topics that Vitalik sees as kind of like the logical conclusion of a lot of different forces, um, perhaps maybe a lot of them social, a lot of them political in his first uh, in his first blog post that we get into. Uh, but then the second two are more technological and about the way that ethereum, um the the landscape is going to manifest and mature over time. Um, so again, a wide ranging conversation, but still with a lot of awesome through lines. Absolutely, if you're listening on the podcast, of course, we have this on YouTube as well, where we actually go through the articles
0: visually. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can check it out on the podcast and get it directly into your ears, make it more portable that way. David, we should just get right into the interview, but before we do, guys, we want to talk about the sponsors
1: that made this episode possible. If you want to live a bankless life, you need to get a Monolith DeFi Visa card. Monolith is a one-two punch of both an Ethereum smart contract wallet and an accompanying Visa card that lets you spend the money that you have in your Ethereum wallet everywhere where Visa is accepted. When you swipe your Monolith Visa card at the grocery store or at a restaurant, it actually makes a transaction on the Ethereum blockchain that spends some of the money you hold in your Monolith wallet. It's insanely cool and it's one of the best tools out there for living a bankless but still normal life. Monolith also offers on-ramp services for getting your fiat money into the world of DeFi. So it's trivial to top up your Monolith card if you ever need to, and your deposited money goes straight into your non-custodial wallet, so your money is never held by a centralized intermediary. Because Monolith is native Ethereum infrastructure, The money you hold in your Monolith wallet still has the power of DeFi behind it. Swapping assets on Uniswap or earning yield in DeFi is at your fingertips. Go to monolith.xyz and sign up to get your Monolith Visa card today. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got back into crypto back in 2017 and it has been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and over 50 countries worldwide, and on Gemini there are markets for over 30 various crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens like Wi-Fi, Aave, Uni, and also they are one of the few exchanges that has liquid DAI markets. Having both the option of logging into the Gemini.com website or instead opening the Gemini mobile app has allowed me to be able to access any and all exchange and on or off ramp services that I've needed to on a moment's notice. With instant deposits and fast withdrawals, I'm able to make my money do the things I want it to when I want it to. You can buy crypto safely and securely on Gemini with the peace of mind of knowing that your investments are insured and protected with industry leading cybersecurity. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 bonus. Check them out. Gemini.com slash go bankless.
0: Okay, Bankless Nation, we have Vitalik Buterin with us once again, uh, who needs no introduction to Bankless. Vitalik, how are you doing today?
2: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Good morning to you, sir. You know, we wanted to talk about three of the recent articles you put out, and I think the, the one to start with uh, may be the one you kind of bookmarked on the end of 2020. 2020 was a, a crazy year at least for me, it did not start in the, it did not go the way I had thought it would go. And I think that's probably true for, for a lot of people. Um, so let's start with that article. We're also gonna talk about your roll-ups article and then social recovery after that. But let's talk about
2: 2020. Why was hmm. it such a strange year? Lots of things were strange. I mean, I, first of all, you know, the virus was strange. Um, then, I mean, politics in a lot of countries were strange. Um, life moved onto the internet very quickly, and, and that made things that were already strange even more strange. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, just a whole bunch of uh, things uh, happened at the same time, but also I think uh, in addition to some of the things that we saw that were in uh, a fairly exclusive to 2020, it was also this year that I think really, accelerated a lot of the trends that we've seen uh, just already moving pretty quickly over the last couple of decades right so some of the more important ones that I talk about I mean one of them is just the yeah, internet becoming this uh, much more important and and of quickly primary force in our lives I and mean, I know you had Balaji on your podcast earlier and you know, he talked about like the primary and the mirror and this was kind of the flippening where the internet became the primary and I think like that was completely true, uh, but I also think it's important to like, really think through some of the consequences of uh, what that being true means, right? Because uh, for a long time, you know, people have talked about things like, like post-scarcity economics and zero marginal costs, and, you know, what a world where most value is a virtual and most things people care about are virtual actually means. Um, but I mean, the effects actually are profound, right? And you don't, I think, kind of appropriately realize kind of just how much needs to be rethought um, until you actually experience it. Um, so, and I've been a like I highlighted a couple of things like I yeah, kind of talked about how important public goods are on the internet for example. I um, talked about how um, important um, even just like the different ways in which uh, economics applies. Uh, so like basically the, uh, the, the challenge with uh, kind of online activity generally right is um, that um, like it's just much more difficult to formalize uh, kind of things that are going on right like because in the physical world like we've uh, done this uh, kind of fairly um thorough job of kind of formalizing you know this is a transaction this is a trade this is private property this is me selling something this is you buying something but on the internet kind of the lines are inherently much more blurry there's a lot of uh, kind of complicated kind of psychology and um mixing into everything else. And so it's very hard to even just mathematically model things that are going on, right? Like uh, in say the traditional world, I um, mean, you, know, you can use things like dem- demand and supply curves and you can try to measure, um, you know, who, um, like what the price of apples is, how the price of apples will change if someone spins up a new farm or if an old farm shuts down, um, you know. You even, you know, things like war, you can, you have things like Lanchester's laws and you can try to measure like how much damage an army will take if it it fights another army. And in reality, there's a lot of noise, but like, you know, there's things that you can try to kind of make make mathematical models of, Uh, but on the internet, it's just this incredibly chaotic space, um, right? And whether or not some particular mess, um, tweet that someone makes gets 100 retweets or 1 million retweets at something that often just completely cannot be predicted ahead of time right mean, it's uh, this um, environment uh, where like, you just don't really know and there's this really complex uh, set of interactions within this kind of primordial soup and like how do you even make say a mathematical model about like what bitcoin maximalists are going to do on twitter well okay i mean realistically you can just copy what they say at yeah, 12 months ago and then like maybe change like one or two words but uh, the um, you know the, the results of those uh, inner of those interactions uh, do are just something that's like much more difficult to explain using tools that were optimized for explaining different things basically right um and so the basically the one of the ideas that I wanted to kind of make is just that like, understanding different kinds of mass psychology has uh, become more important, right? Like, you know, Twitter runs on uh, mass psychology, political movements run on mass psychology, uh, Bitcoin maximalism runs on uh, mass psychology, and Ethereum maximalism runs on mass psychology. Um, and these aren't really tools that have been typically used to describe, like, say, space economies. Um, But, like, realistically, if we want to understand, like, say, you know, which cryptocurrencies are going to to be important 10 years from now, like, you just can't, like, the psychological tools are even more important than the economic tools in terms of just uh, understanding, like, what's actually going to happen there, right? And, And so, like, basically, I think it's just, you know, just realizing kind of this, um, the relative importance of uh, these different tools and how like, we just need different ways of uh, understanding this uh, kind of world where everyone is just uh, like so quickly interacting with everyone else and just the one action can have like extremely large consequences very quickly is just something that's very important.
1: Vitalik, Ryan started off this conversation uh, asking about, you know, the he, he said that the trajectory of 2020 ended up being very far off from what he thought it was. And this is I, I, something I hear you echoing when you say, like the the, the calculation or the calculus be, behind predictions around mass psychology is all haywire at this point. It's all it's all very different from what we expect. At the same time, uh, I've heard o- other people give um, different attitudes about 2020, which is, you know, perhaps less that 2020 was a massive curveball, and there was perhaps less of a pivot of humanity than what we thought, but rather just an acceleration. Right. Right. And
2: I think that's, uh, I think that's the point I'm trying to make as well, Mm. right? Like it's, these things were true well before 2020. It's just that 2020 was the year where we just like suddenly flipped the switch from being like, you know, maybe like let's say in 2018, we, life was like, say 20% uh, internet and in 2019, it was 22% internet. And then in 2020, it just like flipped over to being like 60% internet. Uh, So there's definitely trends uh, that were growing before and all of these things did exist before. Um, but the fact that we saw this sudden shift to the majority of a person's life experience, um, or at least the part of a life experience that involves them interacting with other people uh, being behind the computer screen, is uh, something that's very significant.
1: What characteristics or dispositions or just traits would, would you say would excel? As a result of like the changes that we've seen in twenty twenty, if if who do you who, what types of people do you think are going to be, uh, do really well in comparison to others in this decade coming? Mm,
2: uh, and I think uh, people who are not too stuck in existing ways of thinking, um, in um, institutions that were created um, relatively yeah, more recently, um, as opposed to uh, uh, as opposed to much older ones, um, people who just, like generalists is um, another really important category. Um, like, uh, I think, you know, we saw this with the, even just, you know, the coronavirus, for example, right? Like, you know, if you're, An excellent epidemiologist, but you're terrible at understanding how human beings respond to messaging, then, you know, you're going to have bad predictions. If you're an expert at how um, Humans respond to messaging, but you're, but you know, you're a terrible epidemiologist and you don't, uh, you don't have Kind of the skills needed to just triangulate um, information from people who are good epidemiologists, then, you know, you're going to have bad predictions on the coronavirus. Um, And so the fact that we have these forces just all densely interacting with each other basically means that like, there's a huge premium on you know, being able to have your hand in pretty much all of them to at least some extent. Um, and uh, there's definitely people who I think uh, like do that well. And like, it, it does get easier to uh, see, see people who do that less well.
0: Yeah, I think that, that this was something that really shaped uh, 2020 and it comes it comes out in your article that actually understanding the world in 2020 or actually like even predicting the future required very much of this interdisciplinary approach, right? Like, so um, it, you talked about the idea of like, there's econ- uh, economics and there's politics, right? But But there's also a blend, which is this idea of a political economy. And you talked right. about how in, in 2020, we saw governments acting much more like market actors. They were almost acting like, like companies, market, like market forces getting involved in that direct way. And, and then you had on the flip side, corporations acting like, like governments. Um, and then I, I think the same sort of a, applies in, in crypto too. It's really the multidisciplinary thinker that understands this space and succeeds in this space. Um, and you you talked a little bit about crypto as a social system too. Mm -hmm. Why is it, why is it so important, I guess, to be a multidisciplinary thinker in, in thinking in predicting the world of, of 2020 as it gets more complicated and then why is that also important in, in crypto? Is it just that all of these systems are so interrelated together that you have to think of them as a, as a holistic system and you can't kind of like carve out the pieces.
2: Right. Crypto definitely is a social system. And, you know, as uh, one of our favorite quotes goes, uh, layer zero is people. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, like there is that layer. And then there's also the layer of uh, the economics and, um, you know, things like how staking works, um, things um, like, uh, you know, like how the various DeFi interactions work. And all of these things interact with each other. Right, uh, so this is also just another example where 2020 is more of a trend acceleration like you can I've been I've been trying to point out some of these things for a long time right so like one example of this as just collusion. Um, so, like what in terms of um, let's say can collusion break uh, say proof of work mining right like from an economic analysis point of view we have answers right 51% can do whatever the hell they want and 33% can selfish mine, um, but then there's this so that's basically about as far as economics can get you now that, then there's the question well let's suppose that the network is broken up into one pool that has nine percent one pool that has eight percent one pool that has seven percent one pool that has uh, you know six percent and one pool that has five percent and then a bunch of smaller pools so the top five pools get together make um you're going to make up 35%, right? Now, 35% is greater than 33%. Can those five pools together salvage mine? Well, that actually depends on whether or not those five um, entities are able to work together. Uh, And that is a question of uh, like cultural issues much more than it is a question of economic issues, right? So, you know, you have to answer questions like, well, are like what is the internal structure of those pools um, are those pool are those pools um, owners uh, friendly with each other um, you know do they all go to the same bars are they in the same uh, chat groups um, are they all Chinese or are they all American or are some of them Chinese and some American and uh, some from Guatemala uh, so the you know do they um, all speak the same language uh, do they have the same, political opinion on, uh, you know, like, some random uh, space issue, like, you know, you just, like, you have to start uh, kind of think, thinking about all of these um, um, questions in order, to, like, because they all just have an influence on whether or not those five pools actually can get along um, in order to make an attack. And then, of course, there's a question of, well, like, you know, what are the moral values in the community? And, uh, you know, are any of those pools going to be morally averse to attacking? Are any of the pools going to try to whistle-blow if they get called up to participate in this collusion? And and so, issues about uh, kind of morality and like just what people's ethical views are like actually starts to become very important when you start talking about coordination. And so, like, basically, there is some uh, amounts that the economics can say and then there is this other amount like which usually you, you can kind of sum up to kind of which uh, like which actors actually are um uh, act only going to act as separate actors and which actors can work together and kind of approximate one larger actor and you have to just ask about all these cultural and social forces if you want to the yeah answer to that second question and of course all these systems do interact with each other right right so Uh, like
0: what what you're saying vitalik is like you you can't economics doesn't measure all of these other things right it doesn't necessarily measure mm -hmm. some of the social factors and you ask the question about like what actually motivates human beings and it turns Mm -hmm. out that money is one motivator maybe it's even sort of a, a useful motivator because it's a common denominator type motivator but it's far from the only motivator of human mm-hmm. behavior. There are so many other motivators of, of human behavior. I, I liked a, a tweet that you put out recently. Uh, something to the effect of even a billion dollars of capital can't compete with a project having a soul, right? So, like, no,
2: that wasn't a tweet. That was part of the article. No. It
0: was part of the article. Okay. So, um, like, that is. That, that's kind of what you're saying is like there's actual a tangible value in a project having a culture and a set of, of beliefs. Can you get into that a, a little bit more? So like, what do you mean about why is it important to understand what motivates us in, in order to understand crypto economic systems?
2: Mm-hmm. So I think um, the thing that's important to remember is that m- most like all open source ecosystems and internet ecosystems more generally, rely on a huge amount of uh, free and uncompensated labor, right? <laughs> yes. So in, like, there's many kinds of free and uncompensated labor, right? So like, there's uh, things um, like, uh, you know, writing blogs and uh, just um, answering to people's posts when they ask for help on Reddit or, uh, or in some Discord chat. There's um, participating in GitHub discussions. Um, there's even just like, help educating people about um, you know, whatever project you're in on Twitter. Um, there's uh, running meetups, um, just answering other people's questions in meetups. And, that's that's uh, how
1: I got my start in this space. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Um, there's uh, writing code, um, writing patches to other people's code. Uh, there's just this really long list of behaviors and if you don't have uh, people that are just doing those things because they yeah, love the project, then you know, you're know you just gonna have an extremely hard time, right? And I think like we see this with a lot of these uh, NFBC chain projects, like they often take this very proprietary route. They're gonna say, you know, no, we're gonna like lock um, 50 professionals together in a room and pay them all like $500,000 a year and just they like, get them to build an awesome blockchain and an awesome client in six months and you know sure that can like build a software package but like that's not going to build an ecosystem right that's uh, not going to build all of these uh, kind of things that go around the software that people don't even realize are important and if you build your thing that way then like eventually you're just going to have to burn even more uh, money trying to kind of pay people to do all of that as well um, and so i mean you just if you treat uh, building a yeah, pro- a software project purely as a like the way that a centralized company would uh, treat it then like you're just leaking inefficiency pretty much everywhere right like you just um, you basically have to pay people to do all of this work um, and like but the, that's work uh, that um, you know people actually, like like under the right circumstances what actually just love doing, right? And mm-hmm. like, it's important to remember what those circumstances, um, what those circumstances are, right? Like people do need to have like some fe- a feeling that they're not being exploited, a feeling that they're participating in a system which is you kind know, of good for them and good for other people, uh, good for other people as well. Uh, and there are projects that are just like doing a, uh, um, a good job of this, right? I mean, even just Things like airdrops, for example, are, are one example of this, right? You just kind of like sprinkle a bunch of tokens, uh, basically for free, to an entire community, and you just swapped in this. Uh, great, and I thought that was a kind of great move to um, get this kind of community engagement. Uh, so, like, you just basically as an uh, open. Uh, open source project, like you just have to uh, kind of make sure, like, just create an environment where, you know, people are interested in participating, people are willing to participate uh, and, and where, you know, people do, like in some sense feel like the community that they're contributing to belongs to them, right? And not just, um, you know, the company that's uh, kind of theoretically most uh, theoretically in charge of building the thing. Or, I mean, ideally that company doesn't even need to be in charge of uh, like there doesn't need to be a single company in charge of the thing.
1: I think the, the best and most salient example to back this up is like the absolute gargantuan amount of free marketing that both Bitcoin and and Ethereum receive from their respective communities, right? Bitcoin podcasts are just done for purposes, you know, financial purposes. You know, Peter McCormick and his podcast is a very well-financed podcast, but he right. also has huge clout in the community and, and so do other mm-hmm. all the other Bitcoin podcasts. And the Ethereum media ecosystem, which Bankless is a part of, is also like following in those footsteps, like B- Bankless, EthHub, The Defiant, like Ethereum media is, do- media is doing really, really well. And I think one of the reasons why these public blockchains receive so much of, so much, you know, tailwinds from all this free marketing is what you alluded to, uh, just A, just now, but B, also in your article as neutrality. Bitcoin and Ethereum mm-hmm. have neutrality. Maybe you could talk about how neutrality plays a role in people's um, desires to commit their time and energy and, and human capital mm-hmm. into these systems. All right. So neutrality basically just to be, or like I, I prefer even using the
2: word credible neutrality. but uh, kind of, emphasizes the social psychology aspect of it, which is that it's not just about like convincing me that something is neutral, it's about convincing each of us that each other will uh, may consider, uh, consider the system to be neutral. And so it's something that like, lots of people can um, get behind at the same time. Uh, and, and I think um, that you know, neutrality is uh, just importance basically and a big factor of it is just like people are willing to contribute but people don't want to feel like they're exploited and they don't want to feel like all they're doing is to like just enrich some uh, special interest. Um, another part of this is um, that you know people wants to contribute to a system where they can feel kind of some degree of personal ownership over it. Um, also just people would prefer to uh, participate in a system where they have some guarantee that you know the system is not going to um, unfairly go against them in the future, and and all of these things are just a much easier to accomplish when you have a system that actually is neutral, right? Like when you know you have something like a, an open source project or a blockchain or just generally. Something that has uh, kind of the rules um, set up in such a way um, that you actually can make some kind of case that it does treat everyone fairly. And that's something that, you know, centralized systems just uh, do end up failing at all the time, right? Like when they make any kinds of uh, just decisions about lots of things, like, you know, it's just hard to figure out whether some decision actually is a needed technical feature or whether it's just to like preserve the company's business model or something like that and and so like in like if you have a project where there is a this uh, kind of centralized company that feels like it's controlling things and it's getting most of the benefit then you know you just lose the ability to kind of get get these other benefits.
0: I was thinking, Vitalik, earlier you used the term uh, love, right? You said you know that you know mm-hmm. people in order to tell others or volunteer, like answering mm-hmm. questions or writing blog posts, they have to really love the project, right? Love, mm-hmm. and I, I was just thinking to myself, okay, I know that there are people who love Bitcoin, right? It's very easy mm-hmm. to see Bitcoin passion. I know there are people who love Ethereum. I myself love mm-hmm. Ethereum. There's elements of Bitcoin I love too, and I was trying to think like. What do I love so much about it? And definitely credible neutrality is is, is sort of part of it and even, even more broadly than that, for, for me it's about kind of the, the, the value system that I really identify with right So there, there's something about ethereum and to a lesser extent Bitcoin that that I believe is net positive for the world right I think the thing that we're building with a decentralized, you know, capital coordination, human coordination tools is, is going to reap the world, my kids, our grandkids, future generations, some net benefit. I believe that the world is skewed much more towards uh, centralized you know, systems and we need to kind of like balance the force mm-hmm. at some level, right? It's this set of values that would mm-hmm. honestly, um, like I would work for Ethereum for free, Right, like you know, and, and both David and I, yeah, I we, well, we you have started in the off. Past. Yeah, you, we both started that way. Right, yeah. and, and here's the thing: is like you couldn't you couldn't pay me enough upside to invest in um, some crypto projects out there. Like, there's no amount right. of there's no amount of money you could pay me to put a dime into Tron. Like, I just <laughs> I don't care how much money I would make. I just don't adhere oh, to the come value on. system.
2: The right? Rx standard.
0: <laughs> so, so. What, what is it about like, um, I guess, how do you create a, a culture like that? What it, it's even sometimes hard to articulate exactly all of the values that, that Ethereum has, but how important are values and, and how do you foster that? How do you uh, create that in a community or does it just happen organically? Can you not like, you know, create these things? I don't know. What, what are your thoughts here?
2: I think founders are important. Um, and like the the very early kind of influential members in a community are important. Like basically the way that the community is near the beginning, like basically just kind of, it sets um, the the focal points like, you know, it just, uh, like it sets the standard for like, this is a community of people who uh, believe these things. And if you're an outsider and you think you believe roughly those things, then, you know, you would feel um, inclined and then welcome to join the community. And if you don't believe those things, then you would feel inclined to go join other communities. Uh, So I think uh, once uh, that uh, kind of seed has been planted, then like uh, it's easier to maintain it, though it it does still take work to maintain it, right? Like it is still possible, I think, for a community to just like drift over time into being something much less interesting. Um, But um, like, the really important work, I think, is just creating that seed at the beginning. And if you don't have that seed at the beginning, then that's something that's extremely hard to uh, create retroactively. Do you know so, what,
0: what you're talking about, Vitalik, almost reminds me of sort of uh, like the way a religion might be founded, right? There's this set of values and people self-select. And no one's forcing you necessarily into a religion, at least you know, in, in most uh, areas of the world. That's not the case but you 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 kind of subscribe to a set of of value systems and then you find yourself like pulled into that into that um specific religion or way of thinking and i guess that's the social element here too but you also address in your article how this can kind of take a dark turn too Mm. and you you Mm -hmm. said (laughs) uh we thought we were building nations and it turns out uh what we got was digital nationalism right so this idea of like maximalism how can how can cultures kind of turn a little bit um, dark, and um, I guess um, I I I I don't know a word for it, but like senile? But small, yeah. senile, small in their thinking, small tent, uh, and close-minded might be might be some words to describe it. What are some of the the negative effects of this social dynamic in crypto?
2: Mm. Uh, and I think like. First of all like one one of the points that I feel like I tried to get across is that like we saw even down to a very big a, a very fine level of detail phenomena happening in cryptocurrencies that seem to almost perfectly mirror phenomena that we see in like political systems right Like, we see things like, you know, the civil war between, um, you know, you have a civil war inside of country X, and then eventually country X splits in half, and then you have one country that's called, like, you know, like, Democratic Republic of X, and the other country that's called People's Republic of X, or, like, whatever the word permutations are, Um, and then you have some other country Y, and uh, that country Y supports, like, um, the uh, um, the one that looks more like an offshoot, um, and people in the other one think that Country why is only supporting them because they uh, because they want to like drive a wedge and and um, attack the first country, but people in in Country why think that they're that well no the other one is just more aligned with their values, and then you know, the story goes on right and uh, in cryptocurrency land like we've basically replicated that exact phenomenon like down to very fine levels of detail and just basically within 10 years Uh, and and uh, i thought that was interesting right it's like interesting because like if some if something can just appear twice in these um completely different uh, contexts with completely different kind of laws for what systems are and how they interact, then like this is a very kind of deep and fundamental kind of primitive of like basically mass um, so uh, and of social interaction that um, is just like, is, uh, is, be- is going to be very hard to kind of move beyond completely.
1: Now, in terms what you're of talking like, about, just for the listener, is you're talking about the Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash civil war, and then you're also talking about correct. the Ethereum, Ethereum Classic split. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so
2: the um, now, in terms of like, I think which communities uh, are more healthy and. Which communities are less healthy? I mean, so one of the quotes, and this this is one that I did make make on Twitter a while ago, is um like I think evil comes mostly not from greed but from fear, right? Like like we have a culture, I think, of um you know thinking about greed as being kind of you know the ultimate evil, and um, talking about um you know evil villains who wants to take over the world uh, and uh, you know evil banksters who wants to make like billions of dollars um, by defrauding people and all of these things. But I think like the reality is that people are much more easily able to convince themselves to do the worst things when they feel like they or their communities are under existential threat. And... I mean, like, this is something that you see if you kind of, if you study, you know, interactions between countries and political parties and like history more generally. And I think this is something that we see in the crypto space as well. Um, right? Like, I think, uh, you know, the Bitcoin community, for example, or let's say the Bitcoin small blockers, for example, I think, like, genuinely felt like they were under, uh, or they and their values were under existential threat from the big blocker movement um, that was uh, uh, trying to push a a hard fork to increase the block size. I think the Ethereum community was at its worst, maybe, in, uh, well, one example, uh, one of the times was um, right after the uh, Ethereum classic uh, hard fork, where... A lot of people were basically arguing that, you know, any like there's no legitimate reason to oppose the Dow Fork. And if you oppose like the people who are or there's no legitimate reason to support Ethereum Classic. Um, and if you support Ethereum Classic, chances are you're probably just a Bitcoin show, which I think like, you know, a lot of, I think in a lot of cases it just ended up being completely false. And like and I even believed some of those things myself at the time. But like the reason why everyone was kind of whipped up into a frenzy is because that this was the first time that that kind of hard fork in Ethereum happened. And it felt like, a, you know, like ETH had got down from $12 to $8, right? And ETC was gone, it had gone up from $0 to $4. And it felt like there was this existential possibility that, it, that the ETC situation would basically just completely wreck Ethereum as we know it. And in the so when your community is just is faced with that kind of threat, um, then People are just going to act worse, right? And I think, like, it's true with Bitcoin. I think it's uh, pro- true with um, I- Ethereum as well. It's, uh, I think, true with uh, basically any community. Uh, and if, again, uh, the kind of normative conclusion from this, I think, is that if you want to have better relations between a the community, then like basically community just like need to be able to. Convince each other that they are not interested in uh, kind of vi- like violating each other's uh, like base, like most fundamental like uh, kind of, like existence. Basically, right? That they're not interested in creating a scenario that would lead to the yeah, complete annihilation of the other one, and that's I mean, that's harder than it seems. Right? Like you can't just kind of. Have a, a couple of leaders go out and say it because there's inevitably some other people in the community who would go out and say something else, and then someone uh, gets into a Twitter fight and they say something that gets quoted for for you know six months or five years. But like that, that feels something like that uh, kind of feels like it's uh, one of like basically the only way to um, have less of that sort of thing. And like sometimes it is hard, right? Like sometimes it's hard because the problem isn't just like the way people behave, the problem is just like fundamentally what the things are, right? So like, I, like for example, if you're a Bitcoin person and you believe that Bitcoin only has, like, only has value because of uh, the network effect and because of being number one then, you know, you perceive any other um, cryptocurrency getting too big relative to yourself as being an existential threat. Because if you become number two, then from your point of view, like a uh, three months later, you're going to be number 200. Um, and that, I, like, I think like that's, uh, I mean, Ethereum itself has uh, kind of some risk of uh, believe, of believing that if, um, you know, like someday other smart contract platforms are going to become popular. Um, so, like, creating a uh, like space and uh, kind of creating intent to have an ecosystem that allows uh, kind of multiple crypto communities and even uh, kind of multiple blockchains to survive, I think is uh, like, this is one of the reasons why I'm uh, kind of, it tends to be fairly anti-maximalist. Like, I think it's just kind of necessary to have peace, right, like uh, if uh, like, the more people believe winner takes all, then like, you know, the corollary of winner takes all is, um, you know, loser loser loses everything. And if you, like, if people think that if they're the loser, they lose everything, then they're going to be willing to do just like the worst things in order to like increase their chances of winning. And that's something that I don't want to see.
0: There's an element to what you're saying and what you wrote, which was, uh, which was kind of um, like new system, same problems. You know the 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 same sort of uh, fragmentation and tribalism and and nationalism that we see in in political systems, we are now seeing play out in crypto in remarkably similar similar ways. Does Mm -hmm. that make you a bit pessimistic about about crypto in any way? Because like, Mm -hmm. so we've got a new system, but have Mm -hmm. we ported those same problems over? And is that reason to be pessimistic?
2: I don't think so. I think, um, well, I think like pretty much almost inevitably from the beginning, I was expecting crypto to be a process of uh, kind of starting off with uh, very wild dreams, but a very small scale um, and inevitably kind of scaling back on its dreams uh, somewhat and uh, kind of figuring out what parts of what it wants to accomplish are actually realistic while at the same time, you know, actually becoming a a significant force um, that can uh, impact, uh, you know, global affairs and uh, the future of humanity. And I think like, you know, we're on that trajectory, right? Like we're on that uh, kind of trajectory where it's clear that there's some things that crypto is not gonna do and some things that crypto is not going to solve. But at the same time, um, you know, it's gone up from being this tiny little bubble that nobody cares about to being this big thing that, you know, just all sorts of like mainstream figures and artists and uh, intellectuals are starting to really follow and care about.
1: What What about the Ethereum community or Ethereum culture gives you pause or what something, what about the Ethereum community would you criticize that you would like to see changed or just be worked on into the future? Mm, I remember you asked me this question almost a year ago. Uh, yeah, I, I think... Um, one of
2: the things I answered is just this uh, kind of perception that um, you know Bitcoin has a uh, like a strong and kind of focused narrative whereas um, Ethereum does not. and I think my answer was something like well you know I, in, definitely in less certain terms, but because I, I guess I, it's hard for me to say it in less certain terms because I believe it more certainly now. It's like you no, know, you know, focus is overrated, and the whole point of Ethereum is that it's um, like it's not a missile. It's a it's a it's a jungle, uh, and and uh, you know the point of uh, Ethereum is that it's. Uh, not trying to like accomplish this one single thing of um you know replacing global fiat currencies with eth um and using um the uh, power of um, austrian economic theory to ensure that this definitely brings uh, human prosperity um and um you know doesn't uh, lead to like mass inequality if it happens over the course of 3 years or whatever um but like i think in in you know ethereum instead was it's like There's there's many dreams, right? Like there's uh, obviously I think uh, Ethereum does inherit the kind of Bitcoin dream of just creating this kind of independent asset that people can directly own and control without any reference to, you know, banking institutions or um, or governments. I mean, there's also this uh, dream of uh, enabling, you know, decentralized financial applications. There's um, also um, this dream of being this kind of com- uh, common interaction layer for just like different kinds of open source software, right? Like, you know, we had open source and now we have open state um, and you can have these uh, kind of applications that don't have a dependency on one single owner and but that can still interact with each other in uh, kind of much more interesting ways. Um, we still have the dream of like experimenting with, I you know, decentralized governance and decentralized applications. Um, we have uh, things like prediction markets, um, and prediction markets have been, uh, you know, very exciting over the last uh, c- couple of months. And I think I've uh, outed myself a couple of times as a yeah, proud N-TRUMP whale. Um, and uh, you know, that, 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 that was interesting. Like it's uh, like, uh, that, that was the first, even one one of the first times when uh, you know the Ethereum blockchain was like providing direct value to me as a user that I would just not be able to get on any on uh, any other platform. Um, but by the way, just for the listeners, "end Trump whale" means someone who is buying tokens that pay one dollar if Trump does not win the election.
1: And importantly, um, and you Trump were buying war. them for less than a dollar
2: after the election, correct?
1: Af- after the election was done, you were buying end Trump tokens, which yeah. pay out a dollar if Trump doesn't actually win, and you were buying them for less than one dollar
2: for eighty-five cents. Yes, for eighty-five cents. Ooh, that's a that is a threat. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know that's um, so that was um so I think like the um and the and then there's this big long tail of applications um you know using them for like some kind of like identity management um e- like using them for I mean we'll, we'll talk about social recovery wallets later but one of the ideas the longer term ideas that I have is that I think you can have social recovery wallets for accessing web2 services um, so like accessing centralized services and they, like, it would be nice to have ways of logging into centralized services that are not dependent on other centralized actors like Google or Facebook, but or Twitter, but that's kind of skipping ahead right that's also a blockchain application. Um, and then, you know, there's all of this like identity, there's like certificate related stuff, uh, there's just like money trans, uh, just uh, transfers remittances, um, donating to charity. Uh, so there's this just a long, interesting tale of um, applications. And, you know, there's plenty of people in Ethereum land who believe in some of those applications and don't believe in other applications. And and, uh, that's like a thing that I realized is that, you know, that's healthy, right? Like, uh, you know, like, no, Ethereum is not a missile. It is a jungle, right? It's uh, like, there is no single part of it that has to succeed for the whole thing to succeed. And, you know, it, it is just like, creating this new set of uh, kind of tools and this uh, kind of technological and economic substrate for a new kind of economy. And like, that is the vision. And that's something that I think like was less clear to me a year ago, but it's becoming much more clear over time. And I know, I feel like it's becoming much more clear to the Ethereum community itself um, as well over time. Uh, So I think like just kind of, improving on kind of telling that story well is um, one thing that I think is just continues to be important I think it's just it's just importance to kind of you know strike back against uh, these uh, kind of memes that some people give which is that like you know ethereum has no values or that um that uh Th- that recent article from uh, Lynn Alden, where I think well, she just said that, you know, Bitcoin culture has more of this, like, ethos and Ethereum culture is more gamers. And I uh, know that makes me face <laughs> a bit. Uh, you know, nothing against gaming, but, uh, you know, the, the vision is uh, much broader than just gaming. But I think we've definitely been doing a, a not good enough job of uh, properly articulating it. Um, and then, so that was one thing the other thing of course is like it would be nice if we can find some way to kind of communicate a, a narrative to other crypto projects um, to just convince them that ethereum is doesn't does is not an existential threat to them uh, and and that I mean, they uh, like like basically that, you know, Ethereum is not an everything killer, right? And I think like it's true that Ethereum is not an everything killer and uh, there's lots of other projects that have managed to kind of exist and various kinds of uh, kind of symbiosis with Ethereum. And I think that's great. Uh, so if the, the more we can uh, kind of Get other uh, community energy, uh, other communities and their energies to be kind uh, of working uh, with the ecosystem instead of them just very understandably feeling forced, like they're like they have to compete against it, and then uh, the better.
1: As our conversation around this particular blog post comes to a close, I'd like to read out some of your conclusions that you put in in the last paragraph. And by the way, to the listeners, this conversation that we're having with uh, Vitalik here is a great supplement to the blog post, but absolutely not a replacement. So you can definitely go and read the blog post yourself at vitalic.ca. you will find it there. Uh, in in your conclusion, Vitalik, you write uh, three short bullets. And I would like to read them here and we can go over them. One-to-one interactions, um, uh, uh, this is your pred- predictions for like, or and your assessment for the current state of the world. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a world where One-to-one interactions are less important. One-to-many and many-to-many interactions are more important. And then the the next bullet. The environment is much more chaotic and difficult to model with clean and simple equations. Many-to-many interactions particularly follow strange rules that we still do not understand well. And then lastly, the environment is dense and different categories of powerful actors are forced to live quite closely side by side with each other. We've talked about some of these topics already here so far in this conversation, but I'd just like to to turn the mic over to you and kind of get you to expand on some of these thoughts, predictions and how you how the evidence that you saw play out in 2020 kind of led you to these conclusions.
2: Sure. Uh, So. For the first one, and I think, uh, like I talked about this a bit, right, like uh, traditional economics tends to deal more with these uh, one-to-one interactions where, you know, there's one buyer and there's one seller, and you just have this series of uh, transactions where, like, you know, um, Alice sells an apple to Bob, Alice sells a different apple to Charlie, and if Bob has the money but Charlie doesn't, then Bob gets the apple and Charlie doesn't. And so, like you have this economy that that's you can uh, kind of fairly easily decompose into these uh, kind of fairly small interactions. And like, you know we have things like these like fundamental welfare theorems and, you know supply demand curves, just all of these uh, long list of um, economic principles for dealing with those things. But um, on the internet, like the average interaction is not one to one, right? Like we are recording this podcast. And but then lots of people are going to be listening to it, right? That's a, that that in itself is like a three to ten thousand interaction. Um, a lot um, every time I write an article, that's a one to ten thousand interaction. Um, every piece of code um, going to the yeah, uh, that gets uploaded to an Ethereum client is a, you know, a few to many interaction. A conversation on Twitter is a many to many interaction. Um, Even just like the mass um, of psychology and economics of these kind of self-referential crypto markets is a many-to-many interaction. So like that, those more complicated forms of behavior are just becoming more important pieces of um, understanding of the the world as it's going to be. And then an important result of this is just that the environment is much more chaotic, right? It's um, there's um, a lot of you know, consequences of these interactions that are just hard to predict, hard to understand. Sometimes we, have, we don't yet have good tools for understanding them. Sometimes there just are no good tools for understanding them. And it's uh, just more challenging to um, understand um, you know, what the results of these things are. And so it just needs to kind of keep a more um, open mind toward these things. And then the last one I think is also important, right? Like this um, goes back to the section that's um, right before the, the section at the end, right? This idea that we, like, the world in general is this kind of dense environment where we have these different categories of powerful actors. Um, so like one of the things that I talked about is basically, you know, did the did, uh, kind of, you know the cypherpunk movement as uh, defined by things like these 1996 and, and of crypto anarchist documents uh, succeed or fail. And the question is, basically, it turns out the answer depends on, is is your goal um, eliminating uh, big government, or is your goal creating big something other than government, right? If your goal is the first one, then you failed, um, and if your goal is the second one, then you completely succeeded, uh, right? Like, uh, you know, in 2020, like, big government is still strong, but big business is like strong at the same time right like you know we uh, the um, you know it, it, it's definitely at least looking like the the US space program at this point is basically Elon Musk um, and uh, you know that's something that i, I think uh, might have been again even difficult to first foresee even 10 years ago right but you know at the same time like uh, i mean We, especially with, uh, you know, the virus situation and like both, you know, things like lockdowns and things like vaccine distributions, governments are clearly this, uh, continue to be this big and important force. And then there's also kind of big things other than governments, uh, like there's just like big um, amorphous, uh, just mobs, uh, you know, big um, ideologies, big movements. Um, And so like there's just all of these different uh, kind of large scale forms of human coordination, both centralized and decentralized. And they're just all like at all time highs of uh, power at the same time, right? And that's not really a frame that I think most people were thinking about 10 years ago, right? I think most people 10 years ago would have been thinking about the frame of being, well, it's a kind of, neither can live while the other survive situation. And it turns out that well no both of them live and both of them are, or all of them are living and all of them are surviving and even thriving and you know yes the interactions between them are kind of just very complicated and I think like this is also a bit of a harbinger to, toward the kind of role that I expect crypto to play right like I I don't expect crypto to just kind of like wash away all of these like existing even more centralized forms of coordination. I expect it to kind of complement and to provide an alternative to them. And I, and I think that's something that it's so well on the way to doing quite successfully.
0: Well, Vitalik, this has been a you know, fantastic deep dive into your article. You know, One last question that is maybe more in the current event camp, but I think um, maybe fits the mold of this, this article before we move on to roll-ups. So ETH price just recently hit all-time high. And of course, we talked about how uh, these crypto systems are very much uh, psychological systems as well as social systems and all of these things. Do you think ETH at all-time high is good for the collective psychology and community of Ethereum or, or bad? Because I, I think, you know, somebody could make the case uh, for either or, what's your take?
2: Good question. Um, and I think all time highs are definitely and f- psychologically good for a community. Um, it's uh, the thing I think that's uh, like in general, I feel like whenever there is a bull run the first half of the bull run is very healthy. The second half of the bull run is very unhealthy. Uh, and, and, uh, and oh crap, did I just um, corner myself into a price prediction by implicitly calling now the first half of the bull run? <laughs> yeah. the first ever Vitalik price don't prediction. Don't... Well, okay. I, what I will say is that to me, the present moment kind of psychologically feels like the first half of a bull run. But then again, like at the same time, these are in some ways fundamentally new and uncharted waters and the the, the trends can easily break and it could easily be one of those bull runs that just like abruptly ends during the first half, right? Like that happens all the time. Like the uh, the XRP bull run uh, definitely abruptly ended um, when, uh, you know, the, the SEC um, and of a delightfully sent, uh, sent the thing crashing down. Um, the, um, but so in terms of kind of people's psychological experiences, I think it definitely kind of feels like it's in this uh, sort of relatively yeah, kind of healthy phase right now. Um, but it is one of those uh, things that inevitably ends up uh, kind of flipping into a less uh, a less uh, psychologically healthy, um, healthy phase, especially if uh, like it goes on long enough uh, that people start feeling like they're entitled to it, and um, and like that's always happened historically, right? And there's always been these periods where people just like almost stop working because they're just too focused on uh, on the price, and and then also like in, in addition to the effects on the psychology, the um like there's also things that happen in uh, bull runs, like, uh, you know, transaction fees going up really high, and that's definitely something that I'm uh, hoping that uh, crypto, or sorry, that the Ethereum ecosystem uh, kind of solves very soon. And we already have the technology, right? ZK roll-ups have been running for months. Um, Optimism um, announced uh, the kind of very, their very first limited mainnet uh, last week. Um, but like, we do just need to gets to the point where these scaling techniques uh, like rollups ups in particular are just actually able to absorb even the existing demands right because like right now transaction fees are high like i yeah, i tried out the yeah, social recovery wallets uh, for like argent and uh, i looked at the transactions and like the the recoveries cost 50 dollars and that's just crazy right like no no no, this stuff needs to move on
1: to rollups very quickly If you are looking for a product that connects your fiat bank account with DeFi tokens and products, you need to download the Dharma mobile app. Dharma is a non-custodial smart contract wallet and comes with a bridge that connects you right into your bank account. Dharma is the fastest and most efficient wallet between your fiat and your bank account and any token on Uniswap or even any vault in Yearn. With Dharma, you can get over $25,000 per week into the DeFi universe and you can do it non-custodially. If you or anyone you know is hot on DeFi and you're trying to get your money into a DeFi investment, Dharma is the place to go. Signing up and going through KYC is an absolute breeze. It took me just under three minutes, and after signing into my bank account via Plaid, I am now just one transaction away from any token that Uniswap has to offer. Go to www.dharma.io, that's D-H-A-R-M-A.io, download the Dharma app and get yourself unbanked today. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction. So you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. This is an incomplete guide to roll
0: ups. So Vitalik, can can we go through the incomplete guide uh, to roll, roll ups and may, maybe direct this to someone who has heard about the buzz that maybe uh, roll ups are Ethereum's next big scaling solution, right? And it's kind of the promised land of reducing gas fees. Tell us, what are roll ups? Where would you like to
2: start with this? Sure, uh, so roll ups are a member of this family of scalability solutions that we call the layer two scaling. Right? So. Like there's this long running dichotomy between layer one scaling and layer two scaling where layer one scaling says we increase how many transactions we can process by making the blockchain able to process more transactions. And layer two scaling says we increase the number of transactions we can process by moving work off chain. And instead of like running everything on chain directly, we only run a kind of more limited verification um, activities on chain. And so we use these more clever contraptions to to reduce the need to use uh, the chain in the first place and you know in the case of bitcoin like this was uh, basically the topic of their civil war Uh, but in the case of ethereum you know we're basically doing layer one and layer two scaling at the same time right we have sharding um, for layer one scaling but we also have this very uh, uh, kind of healthy and rich um, layer two scaling ecosystem and i talk about the three i'm um, scaling approaches uh, so there's channels i um, plasma and uh, roll-ups and channels are this uh, me- method for optimizing one-to-one interactions uh, so for example channels are really good at the use case of like let's say i'm selling you an internet connection and uh, you want to uh, pay me per me- uh, per megabyte right and then like what would happen is that like I would start for uh giving you an internet connection and then every time it would um reach one megabyte like you would just send me these off-chain messages that I call tickets right so your first ticket would be a signed message that just says I'm paying you 0.001 your second ticket would be a message that says I'm paying you 0.002 and so forth and the point the way this works is that I only needs to actually put on chain the very last ticket or the highest value ticket that you send, right? And so basically what you're doing is you're just, you're making these payments, uh, but, you're not, but we're not yet committing them. And you just constantly keep paying more by just replacing these payments with higher value payments. And then when I publish uh, the last payments on chain, I'm basically kind of settling all of these payments at the same time and it's happening in one transaction and there is a bit the smart contract implements this kind of interaction game where are basically like let's say if you um try to submit one of your tickets um, that has a smaller payment then i can challenge and i can send your ticket that has the higher payment or if um i just disappear completely then you can send a, your um uh, your own payment uh, or your um your own tickets to uh, close the channel and get your money back and so on uh so Channels are good for bi-directional payments, and there are things like the, the Lightning Network and Raiden that try to uh, expand that out to broader payment networks, but they also do have some weaknesses, right? They're fairly complicated to deal with. They have these high capital requirements and so forth. Then there's Plasma, and Plasma is this very technically clever construction um, that you I know, mean, it turns out plasma is like really amazing for dealing with non fungible tokens, um, because it's just like the whole idea with plasma is that you basically like assign every unit of an asset a different ID, and then you have this kind of Merkle tree contraption where you basically, if an asset has some uh, some ID X, um, then the transaction that corresponds to that address goes into a Merkle tree at index x and then you publish the Merkle roots on chain and then if someone who has like some uh, asset x wants to withdraw it then they would publish an operation on chain um, and then they would have to provide that Merkle branch and if someone else wants to challenge them well they can do that and then all the challenges happen like just by providing these Merkle branches. So plasma is really clever thing. It's uh, good for asset transfers. It's good for payments. It can be do can be used for exchange. Uh, so the uh, OMG network is has, uh, has been doing a, a great job of uh, kind of pushing the plasma vision toward its uh, kind of lo- uh, logical conclusion. Is basically and uh, basically doing as great a job as can possibly be done with it. So very happy that their work exists. But then we move on to the third solution, which is rollups, right and Rollups are a fascinating class of technology because in some ways they're not a full layer two scheme right and what i mean by that is that in a traditional layer two scheme all the data and all the computation of at least each additional transaction is fully off chain right like in plasma you do have to publish Merkle roots on chain but that's 32 bytes it's 32 bytes if there's 10 years and it's 32 bytes if there's 10,000 users. In a rollup, you have to publish like, it looks like somewhere around like 10 to 15 bytes of uh, data on chain for every transaction. Now you, you are able to move all the computation off chain and you are able to move most of the data on um, off chain, but you, don't, you do need to have like some amounts of data on chain for every transaction. And it turns out that the ability to have uh, data uh, on chain basically just gets around some very fundamental game theory issues that have to do with data availability. And in my blog post, I linked to this um, uh, YouTube uh, video that I made, I think it was in uh, some Stanford conference or meetup or one of those uh, where I just talk about like why data availability is hard and like why there's these, uh, complicated game theory issues um, around like you just like, basically you can't have a a fraud proof system for data the same way you can have a fraud proof system for computation and rollups or plasma and channels kind of get around this issue by relying on this explicit concept of owners that basically says that like every asset has an owner. And if the owner for that asset misbehaves, then the system can fail, but the system can fail in only one direction. And that direction basically is that the owner loses the asset. Um, but in a roll-up, you actually can just make a hard guarantee that says the state definitely will be processed correctly, and it turns out that that's really important if you want applications to become more general-purpose, right, because in more general-purpose applications, like, it's just you can't map assets to owners, right, like, who is the owner of Uniswap is uh, the uh, easiest example, right, like, there is... The, there is no single actor who's kind of the logical beneficiary of everything that happens inside of Uniswap. It's just this like automated thing that exists on chain and it benefits everyone and it's owned by no one. Um, so then I get into like basically what is, how does a roll up work, right? And the core idea of a roll up is basically um, that there is a smart contract on chain. And that smart contract maintains a state root. It maintains basically a Merkle hash of all the state inside the rollup. So that means all the account balances, all the contract code, everything inside the rollup, you have this Merkle hash and that Merkle hash gets maintained by the rollup contract. Um, anyone can publish what we call a batch. Right? And a batch is basically this collection of transactions in this very compressed form, um, together with basically a record of the previous state root and a record of the new state root. So a batch is basically a claim that says, if you start here, if you start from this this state root and you apply these transactions, then this is the new state root. Now, in reality, the batch does by itself does not have enough information to fully compute the state, uh, the new state root because if you want to actually compute that, you need to have the Merkle branches. And of course, you don't actually want to compute all this stuff on chain. So instead what happens is that the rollup just believes the batches by default. And then you have one of two mechanisms for proving that these batches are correct, right? So one of them is optimistic rollups and the other is ZK rollups. And here's where we get to the core difference between these two great families of uh, rollups, right? In an optimistic rollup, what you have is a system where, you basically kind of trust but verify, right? So the smart contract uh, kind of trusts the uh, batches by default and it just accepts the results of the batches by default. Um, but then if so, like, there are nodes in the network that actually do run the full computation and if one of them discovers that something is wrong then they can publish a challenge. And if they get uh, challenged correctly then that uh, the batch that's incorrect gets reverted and whoever uh, submitted the badge loses their deposit and the challenger gets a reward and then you kind of continue from there. And so optimistic basically says trust by default, but if someone challenges, then if the thing they challenge is incorrect, then you revert it. And as long as you trust that there's at least somebody online who can revert, then the mechanism works. Now ZK rollups, they use validity proofs, right? ZK rollups use these uh, kind of fancy cryptographic proofs that we call ZK snarks. And they basically prove directly that the post state root is a correct result of executing the batch on top of the pre-state root. And the way that these proofs work is really complicated. Uh, And I actually, I've tried to make a couple of explanations of this. I'm sure I'll try making more explanations of this in the future, but these are just, incredibly powerful and just incredibly clever mathematical contraptions that actually let you make a proof of a computation that takes a long time to compute where that proof itself can be verified extremely quickly. And this is what ZK rollups rely on. So there's these fairly complicated trade-offs between optimistic and ZK rollups, right? In terms of like uh, the, ga- the fixed gas cost of each batch, which influences how frequently batches can be published, the uh, withdrawal period, um, so, zk uh, optimistic rollups. Uh, the the fixed cost per batch is much smaller, which means batches can be published much more frequently. Zk rollups um, have instant uh, withdrawals. Optimistic rollups have uh, withdrawals that take one week. But um, the thing that you can do if you want optimistic rollups to have instant withdrawals is you can basically have a kind of third party market. So basically, like if I have um, say one ETH that's being withdrawn in progress, then if you were validating the rollup and you are perfectly confident that that withdrawal is correct, then what you can do is you can just buy that, buy my right to one ETH for say one ETH minus a fee. You can just buy up my withdrawal so, um, rights for say 0.9999 ETH. I would get my 0.9999 ETH immediately. And then you would just wait a week and then you would get your one ETH at the end, right?
1: So Or your 0. 0.0001 ETH.
2: No, 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 sorry. Um, I oh, okay. would get. No, 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 yeah, I, the total, I see. Right, sorry. Right, yep. Yep. sorry. Right. I, I sacrifice up. my right to one. Instead, I get 0.9999 0. 0. 0. 0. 0. immediately. You, as the buyer of the withdrawal, pay me 0.9999 immediately, and you get the full one at the end. Uh, so, like, this is a technique that's um, available for optimistic roll-ups to have instant withdrawals, but it does have capital costs and importantly it doesn't work with um, nfts because and like nft with nfts inherently like there is nobody who has like a second copy of the same nft that they can collateralize but right. for coins it works amazingly um complexity of technology optimistic rollups are simpler um generalizability um optimistic rollups are easier to have uh, kind of full general purpose evm computation for and this is something that's really important, right? Like uh, there already are ZK rollups that are live and ZK rollups, um, like there's a ZK sync, there's a Loopring, loop ring, there's um, the diversify, and those can be application specific, but um, it's very hard to make them support like much more general purpose computation. Whereas with an optimistic rollup, like, well, we already have one on mainnet that's basically running EVM code on layer two. Uh, so, and then per transaction on-chain gas costs. Uh, so this basically means like, are the um, the on-chain costs that you have to pay per transaction. Uh, so this is basically paying for the sixteen bytes. It turns out that there's technical reasons why for certain types of transactions you need more bytes than an optimistic rollup than an zk rollup. And then there's off-chain computation costs. Uh, so which are actually lower for uh, optimistic. Uh, re- uh, roll-ups uh, than they are, than there are for ZK rollups. So there's complicated trade-offs, but my uh, kind of opinion, summing it all up is that I think in the short term, optimistic roll-ups are likely to win for general purpose EVM computation. ZK rollups are likely to win for simple payments and like some very specific use cases. But I do think that, you know, on a like, five to 10 year time horizon, ZK rollups are going to, are going to be winning out in all use cases. So I think like, The fact that, you know, teams like Optimism and Arbitrum are doing optimistic roll-ups today is perfectly fine. And I think it was, it's completely the correct path um, in order to uh, just uh, get uh, some kind of scaling out for Ethereum in uh, 2021. Yeah, but in like in the, there is going to come a time when ZK rollup technology, ZK snark technology improves and ZK snarks are capable of uh, moving uh, uh, actually verifying EVM computation. Now expect to see demos of uh, ZK snarks, um, you know, doing things like verifying solidity code this year, but just keep in mind that there's a big difference between a demo and a production implementation, right? Like, because uh, once you have a demo, like you still have to, uh, you, you have to security audit it. You have to debug it. You have to really make sure that the verifier is correct. Um, and those, those things are hard, right? Like I personally would much um, rather trust, um, you know, $10 million of my own money to an EVM optimistic rollup than to an EVM ZK rollup for at least the next couple of years. But in the long-term ZK rollups are, I think are going to be everything. And so like I, yeah, my advice to teams like Optimism and Arbitrum is that I think they should start kind of zkifying themselves fairly soon. Like, you know, it's not so, it's not so urgent um, that like you, people should lose interest in projects that are optimistic roll-ups today, but I think projects that are optimistic roll-ups today should have the attitude that they are not going to be yeah, optimistic roll-ups forever and uh, they uh, should have uh, the, a uh, 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 they should start putting together their strategies for uh, ZKing themselves. So I, then I talk uh, kind of more technically about like, well, what uh, is a If frat- I could cut
1: in here, Vitalik, I would just like to, to clarify one thing between optimistic rollups and, and ZK rollups. What, what would you say is the defining characteristic difference between optimistic and ZK rollups that makes you long term? Um, long-term belief in ZK rollups? Like what's the real, what's the real uh, separa- separation between those two things that makes you optimistic about ZK rollups long-term?
2: Sure, uh, so I'm, one is like uh, just ZK rollups have instant withdrawals even and without any collateral requirements. Another is um, that ZK rollups uh, do not have this uh, kind of one of N um, online requirements um, in order for someone to be able to publish a fraud proof. And that's valuable because, uh, like, it op- like it opens the door for zk rollups to be able to you go up and process things like you know tens of thousands of uh, transactions per second. Where in an uh, in an optimistic rollup, once you start having that many transactions, then uh, you know it starts uh, like it's you s- it starts becoming less obvious that there will always be enough honest nodes that are checking the that all the computations are done correctly. Um, also the, um, the the data efficiency, right? Like the the fact that so I have a table a bit further below where I look at the mixer example and uh, the uh, it's uh, one table further below. Um, there it is, right? Like and uh, a mix the mixer only has a seventy seven x scalability gain in an optimistic rollup, but a five hundred and seventy x scaling gain. In a zk rollup, and the reason why this is true is because zk rollups allow you to have less data on chain, because in a zk rollup you only need to have enough data on chain to update the state tree, whereas in an optimistic rollup you have to have enough data on chain to verify the full computation, which is a slightly larger amount of data. Uh, so, I uh, like I don't now to be to be very clear, right? I don't think that these advantages are decisive in 2021. And like I think in 2021, like optimistic rollups and zk rollups are both totally fine. We're gonna have these withdrawal markets. I mean, we're gonna have ways for people to withdraw from you know things like optimism and arbitrum instantly. And in 2021 and and 2022 and like even going a bit further, the fact that optimistic rollups just rely on clean EVM verification and like. The, you know, I've, they have surprisingly simple fraud proof uh, verifiers, I think is a, a decisive advantage as opposed to ZK rollups, which needs to have just like this much larger um, and the uh, complicated compiler code to convert uh, Solidity or Viper or EVM into arithmetic representations. And there's just much more attack service for bugs in there, but like over the longer time horizon, those issues will get resolved, and the calculus is like slowly going to shift toward the zk side.
1: So. I like to take a stab at trying to go through the history of this to to lead into my next question. Ethereum L2 scaling started with state channels, uh, which were, and the the great thing about state channels is that, you know, it's just between two parties, you can make any number of transactions without committing anything to the blockchain. And then to wrap up your day, you commit something to the blockchain, that state channel ends, and then you bundle up, you know, 10,000 plus transactions into just one little packet of data submitted to the blockchain, that's great. And that's great for two parties or just a low number of parties. Plasma was an attempt to have one-to-many or many-to-many type of uh, interactions of various types. Um, And there are different uh, constructions of Plasma that did different things, Um, but um, it it ended up being uh, weak because of this thing called this data availability problem, which in in short is that it's hard for Ethereum, the blockchain to know about the Plasma L2 chains and, and reason and, and know about how to manage that without without making assumptions. And assumptions we don't like assumptions in the world of cryptography. That's not that's not how we play in the world of crypto economics. Uh, we like things to be secure. Uh, and then so then that turned into the rollups revolution of the optimistic and zk flavor, where there was a compromise w- made, where we figured out we could actually just regularly submit you know, some data to the Ethereum blockchain to solve that data availability problem. And so it's not, we aren't getting like millions of transactions per second. We are still generally bottlenecked, but the actual bottlenecks are actually still pretty wide. And there's lots of optimizations there that can make them even, even wider. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of where we are today. How do we know that we aren't, how do we know that we are, uh, towards the end of this research and development process? How do we know in like 2021 or 2022, we're not going to come up with this new scaling system? What indications or evidence do we have that we have approached the end of this research and development phase?
2: That's hard to tell for certain. Like there's no theorem that says that like these are the only uh, scaling uh, mechanisms that exist and there are no others, but I think like there are kind of heuristic arguments that suggest this. Right? I mean, one of them is just the Lindy argument, right? Like we've had channels and plasma and rollups and basically nothing else for something like four years now. Um, I'm uh, in rollups themselves, like I, yeah, they were like in their current form, they were kind of created in 2018 to 2019, but there was this much earlier kind of thing of uh, shadow chains that I published uh, back in 2014 that uh, uh, kind of is a prelude to roll-ups. Uh, so we've uh, had a uh, kind of long and growing time span within which we've uh, known about these three uh, techniques um, and we've seen no others. Another thing that I uh, arguments that you can make is this mathematical arguments that basically says, like if there are end users, um, how much data gets published on chain? Um, not taking into account deposits and uh, withdrawals and fraud. And you can classify them very easily, right? In a channel, the answer is zero. In a plasma, the answer is um, O of one. So just the one Merkle root, regardless of how many uses there are. And in a rollup, it's O of n, right? So like there's a bit of data per transaction. And so that basically covers the space, right? Now you might say, well, is there, are there things between one and n? Are there things that are like square root or like logarithm or some weird thing in between? And I think my intuitive answer there is just probably not because that just means that you ha- eventually you have lo- less than one bit on chain per transaction. Like how much can you actually do with that? Um, but intuitively it just feels like those three numbers like zero one and, and just kind of cover the whole range. And you, know, you can tell how with the uh, increasing on chain load, you have increasing capability, right? Like plasma gives you increasing capability from channels um, what the particular thing being just the ability to send off-chain to new users who have not yet been inducted into the system, and then going from one to n, you have this other gain of capability, which is being able to go general purpose. Uh, so, like there is that kind of heuristic, intuitive reason to potentially believe that like you know these three options just are the options out there, and that everything we're going to see from here is just like different permutations on that.
0: So, I think rollups are, are definitely very exciting. What's what's also exciting is we can uh, begin using them now, right? So, this is no longer hypothetical, theoretical, like Loopring has one in production. Uh, Synthetix just released their version on Optimism. So, it's going to be very exciting to see how both the optimistic rollups and the ZK rollups play out. I had one other question for you, and then maybe we can move on to social recovery wallets. Uh, but just last question on, on rollups. How does ETH2 kind of, just to tie this out, how does the ETH2 roadmap fit with the roll-up uh, roadmap? I understand that um, ETH2 is going to provide a way to um, like uh, p- provide consensus on a sharded data layer, which is going mm-hmm. to make more space, more sort of bandwidth, I guess, uh, for, for roll-ups in the future. W- what's that going Going to look like and what's that going to do for ethereum's holistic scalability story
2: here great question It's definitely very important to kind of circle back into yes, answer this one um basically so we have this thing called the roll-up centric roadmap which basically says that you know in the short term we recognize that there is massive fee pressure and roll-ups are the only thing that can relieve the fee pressure no matter what we do uh, and, and At the same time, we recognize that for sharding, providing sharding of just data, so just having sharded uh, blocks that just contain these blobs where, you know, you might have whatever data you want, but there's no kind of on-chain processing of it, is an easier problem to solve than than, uh, sharded computation. And so if you take those two facts together, the thing that you realize is basically that, well, what do rollups need? Rollups need data. And what's the scalability limit of a rollup? The scalability limit of rollup is basically, well, how much data space is there that the chain has a consensus on. And with the current Ethereum chain, that limit is somewhere around 500 kilobytes a block. Uh, But with the sharded system, you basically have like 500 kilobytes for one, uh, for each of these uh, 64 blocks in uh, every slot, right? Uh, So there's just going to be this much larger amount of uh, space and Within that space, um, uh, you just, uh, you know, you can use that to potentially go up to something like 100,000 transactions per second, uh, just with uh, roll-ups, right? And I have uh, some numbers I definitely encourage people reading the post, it's also on Vitalik.ca, and I talk about some of the tricks that we use for data compression and some of the math um, that shows, like, how many data, um, how many bytes uh, you need for a transaction of different types and uh, how much uh, uh, scaling gain you can get on a, uh, uh, on a regular rollup and, or on a rollup on ETH1, and then multiply that by another 64 to get the uh, scaling gains for rollups on ETH2. Uh, and so...
0: And just, just to clarify here Vitalik, so um, this data, this sharded data layer, is this going to be available to use for rollups before the ETH1 and ETH2 merger?
2: Um, it can be, there is work that needs to be done for that to happen. Basically we need an ETH2 light client inside of ETH1. And that technically requires like some EIPs on ETH1 to be done, which I think are like, in the pipeline I believe for like soon after Berlin or something like that. Got it, cool. All right. Well, excellent. This has been a uh, f- fantastic article. So, of course,
0: an incomplete guide to roll-ups. Um, I, I didn't feel like that was incomplete. What about you,
1: David? I felt I felt like that was a very complete guide to yeah. roll-ups, yeah, um, maybe, at least for me. Maybe that's a good question, Vitalik. What would a complete guide to roll-ups uh, <laughs> yeah. mention? Right. You know, one thing I say is that the guide is already wrong.
2: I so, uh, saw... <laughs> one of the tables um, line 4 general purpose EVM rollups are already close to mainnet. Well, as of now the optimism rollup already is on mainnet at least for uh, synthetics. Uh, So that's uh, uh, progress. And I think like this is just uh, a Evolving technology and people are going to come up with uh, you know new and more clever tricks and like I and I I wrote this blog post with the goal of uh, it being something that people can kind of go back to and just get their just primer on what the heck roll ups are even for years into the future. Um, so I expect there to be uh, more and more things that end up just inevitably not being part of the post, but that uh, you know continue improving uh, roll up uh, people's uh, um, roll up users' experience.
0: Well, excellent. Well, thank you for that guide. All right, let's uh, let's flip to our third and last subject for today. Uh, this is all around the subject of social recovery wallets. So, we we were talking about um, scalability, I suppose, with with roll ups, and you know, the, uh, a typical Ethereum user feels that pain when they pay for a twenty dollar Uniswap transaction, right? Um, another pain point that. Uh, Ethereum users feel is around securing your private keys. And this is definitely a hindrance to, to mainstream adoption. I think a lot of crypto ends up in exchanges just because people are uncertain. They don't feel like they have the tools or the, the competency to secure their own crypto. Losing, uh, and of losing course crypto is, un- is
1: like a rite of passage coming into this industry, which is definitely something that we should have a bandaid for.
0: Yeah, absolutely, um, you know, but and of course, you know, not your keys, not your big, not your crypto, as as our friend Andreas says, and certainly if you want to become bankless and go bankless, you can't keep your uh, private keys inside of a crypto exchange. So right now, best practice is we have things like MetaMask, which is an extension of the driver. If you want to be a bit more secure, you can use a hardware wallet. But Vitalik, you're you're presenting kind of this, maybe this third way, this idea of a social recovery wallet. So could you give us a quick synopsis on what a social recovery wallet is and uh, why it's important? Where do you want to start with this one?
2: Sure, and I guess we can just start off with what the thing is. So if you scroll down to Control-F, social recovery is better. Um, Then uh, there's a diagram a bit further down. There we go, yeah. Um, So basically the idea is that a uh, social recovery wallet is a smart contract wallet. Uh, So if you use a social recovery wallet, your account is a smart contract and your assets would be in that smart contract. And the smart contract has these rules that say that there is a signing key and that signing key can be used to approve transactions. And then you have this concept of guardians right and the idea is that there's a set of some number of guardians at least three i recommend even going up to five or seven if you know enough crypto people um, and of these guardians a majority of them can cooperate to change the signing key of an account if you lose your signing key uh, so the goal of this is basically just account recovery right and account recovery is just something that everyone ends up needing from time to time uh, and and uh, it's something that, like, lots of services really don't do well, um, right? Uh, so, like, uh, if you lose your Google or, or um, account, then I you know, have to go through customer service, and often it's even just very hard to uh, recover your account. And, like, I've no, uh, known people who are just never able to do that. And, and in the case of crypto, of course, um, you know, if you just use a regular wallet, well, if you lose your password, you're screwed. And there's just so many examples of people who just lose access to their accounts and they end up being completely screwed. Uh, Whether they lose it because um, they forget a password or because like something they lose their computer and they just never had a backup anywhere or because they um um reinstall their operating system and they forget to copy over the files that happen to contain some of their keys like there's just a this uh, kind of whole set of reasons um or you know their funds are on a paper wallet but they forget the piece of paper their funds are on a hardware wallet and uh something happens to that hardware wallet there's just lots of reasons why you can lose your funds and so social recovery basically says well you can identify you can specify some set of guardians And this could be institutions, this could be friends or family, this could even be just other devices owned by yourself. And the majority of these guardians has the ability to basically reset your key.
0: So this is a pretty simple idea, quite honestly, right? So, you know, problem that we're solving is uh, custody of private keys is hard and people can lose them. And if they lose them, it's a disaster. You lose your entire crypto. So solution is twofold. You have a smart contract based wallet And then you have this squishy meat space idea of guardians and people who have a Google account are probably uh, used to this. You know, there's a setting in in your Gmail account where um, you can can set, uh, you know, your spouse or a friend's email address to to recover your password, right? This is a similar idea, only you're delegating that guardianship possibly to some, some, some other private keys. And this could be, you know, friends and family, this could be right. um, other devices, that sort of thing. This feels so really, very squishy, though. Really,
2: really yeah. importantly, it's not one of one; it's m of n, right? So okay. that's like that's a huge difference between, like, say, Gmail's recovery email feature. Right. Um, so it
0: would be it would be uh, a set of guardians that would then, when they come together, their powers combined, they can restore. Definitely. They can restore your wallet.
2: Right. So interestingly enough, WeChat already does this, right? Like, if you spin up and I, I, like if you um, just wants to log on to your account and you know, you don't have a password or you don't have some other authentication, then you can create the account. And then what it does is it basically uh, requires you to, like, it gives you some contacts. I think, I believe it's something like they just automatically chooses some contacts that you frequently interact with and it sends them a confirmation code and they have to give you the confirmation code. Or, you know, you have to give them the confirmation code and they have to like type it in a chat with you. I forget it's one of those two. Uh, And so like, basically uh, if uh, you can like multiple of your frequent contacts, um, like type in these confirmation codes, then you can um, access your account,
0: right? So, So so two things I'd be worried about with this Vitalik, right? So um, the, the first is Okay, you said you're essentially putting your private keys inside of a smart contract wallet, right? And there have not been smart contract uh, now your private keys,
2: right? So this is basically saying the your instead of your private keys controlling funds, your the, the smart contract is controlling funds. Ah, right. Has yes. the Ability to replace your private keys if you lose your
0: private. Keys. I see. Right, and that's a that's an important distinction. How, however, um, there could be a bug in a smart contract wallet. Um, there, there could be an issue with that smart contract wallet. It introduces some additional code complexity in the process. So that's the first you know, question I'd have for you. How can we get comfortable around that? Um, right. The second is that it does at first glance feel kind of squishy to um, you know, start trusting space social relationships with this sort of thing? Like people are probably thinking as, they, as they're hearing you talk, okay, who are the like five to seven people in my life that I, I would actually trust with, with, with something like this? And how much do I actually trust those relationships? <laughs> Can you talk about um, both of those, I guess, security vectors?
2: Right, so good, important question. Uh, so I think as far as like security of a smart contract wallets goes, one important thing to keep in mind is that I think um, that the uh, security of the, uh, uh, like the code needed to implement this uh, recovery mechanism is very small, right? It's not maybe even just something like 10 lines of code. And the reason is that like, you can already abstract out the multi part into a separate uh, mechanism, right? And we've already had multi-sig wallets that work for years. There's a, uh, the multi-sig wallet that stores uh, the uh, $600 million or whatever it is of the Ethereum Foundation's money. There's uh, the more recent uh, Gnosis Safe wallet that stores lots of projects money and it's been formally verified and audited many times. Uh, So that's been increasingly trusted by the community. Uh, And so the majority of the code is uh, something that, or like you can just delegate to a multi-sig wallet and that's already been tested. And then the rest of it, like it is something that would need to be written and it is something um, that would need to be audited and verified, but it is a relatively small uh, kind of 30 line of code uh, j- uh, job r- relatively speaking and not, you know, some really complicated thing. Uh, so that's one thing to answer or one. Th- and, and the other thing to keep in mind is that, like I'll talk about this a bit further down, but um, realistically all of this stuff is gonna happen inside of rollups. And I can even expect, like, a a roll-up project to just, like, incorporate some form of multisig or social recovery wallet, like, just natively. And I I think they should do that. Like, I think uh, the move to roll-ups is a great time to start moving people onto these uh, more secure paradigms. Uh, So that's one answer. And then in terms of like you, the question of like, do you trust your social relations? I uh, yeah, have a paragraph a bit further down, right? Where I basically say that there's this really nice security thing that you can do, which is that your guardians, number one, they don't have to be publicly known. And number two, they don't even need to know each other's identities, right? So like you, for example, could use as your guardians or like, you know, your mom, um, if you work for a company, your boss, um, then some institution, uh, some, you know, friend from high school, and these can be, like, you want to use um, guardians from different social circles that you have, right, you want to have guardians that ideally do not even, like, know yeah, each, or at the very least, don't closely talk to each other, uh, and basically, like you, the, the reason why this can be accomplished right is because like either you don't need to publish guardian's addresses on chain until you actually do a recovery or even more securely you can just have each guardian generate a new single purpose address that they would use for each uh upper well f- for each wallet that they're guarding uh, so and and i mentioned like it's recommended to choose a diverse collection of guardians from different social circles one institutional guardian would be nice though uh, there are privacy reasons why you might not want to do that either. And like this basically would just make it very hard for these different guardians to collude, right? So like, for, for example, you know, like I know, like for you, Ryan, right? Like if uh, you become a guardian for David, then like how the hell would you even start figuring out like who of David's other contacts are gonna collude with to steal all this money?
0: <laughs> That's a good so, question. I'm thinking about that now, Vitalik. Who who right. who indeed?
2: So, question one, do you even know? And question two, once you start poking around and asking, what's the probability that you're gonna get up to four of seven before one of these people rats you out to David and David just like switches over his um um guardians to someone else and cuts off contact with you?
0: Yep. Uh, that's probably pretty accurate. And considering David and I have never met in real life, though we have spent hours upon hours in digital life uh, together, uh, means I don't actually know some of his IRL um, mm-hmm. yeah, relationships and, and friends and family. And it's going to stay that way. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, so, so Vitalik, do you think this kind of solves private key management or this could solve private key management basically?
2: I think it's the best solution that we have right now. And uh, I think it would be great for the ecosystem if we can make a kind of a strong push toward implementing this kind of technology.
0: And we do have some of this today with um, Argent is one, definitely bankless listeners will be familiar with. Loopring you mentioned is another. So there are attempts with it right now. And you mentioned, I think um, earlier in our discussion that uh, you, you tried to do a, a recovery with, with Argent just to sort of test that out. And um, it was like pretty expensive. There's like a $50 gas fee associated with it. So maybe we could just we tie this off with uh, what you're talking about earlier is migration to layer two and roll-ups can kind of solve the remaining challenges. So you said some roll-up solutions might even be able to have to ship basically a social recovery wallet right out of the box, which be super cool. It it sounds like rollups have the capacity to innovate faster and try new things um, that the main chain really, really doesn't have that, that capability. But what did you, what did you have in mind about this intersection of synergy between layer two and social recovery wallets?
1: Mm,
2: Yes. Uh, So there's, uh, I think uh, a couple of problems that rollups solve at the same time. And so one of them is that Ethereum has this very subtle technical weakness, which is this uh, kind of dip, the fact that only externally owned accounts can uh, initiate transactions. And that was just... That you, sorry, could you support. define
1: externally owned accounts for our, our it, listeners?
2: It is, yes. Uh, it is an account which is controlled by a private key. The, um, if an account that's not an external account is a smart contract.
1: So, there's only two types of accounts. There's accounts, the addresses with private keys, and then there are addresses that are smart contracts. Correct. Cool.
2: Uh, so, and only EOAs can uh, initiate transactions. There's no ways to initiate a transaction from a smart contract. Um, so, this creates problems, right? And, like, actually, I know, have either of you used the Tornado Cash before? I have. Um, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you n- remember how when you do a withdrawal from Tornado Cash, uh, you have to select a relayer, right? And you're not signing a transaction. You're like signing a message, and then, or actually, I think you're not even signing the message. You're just like providing the note, and someone else sends the transaction, right? Like, so the reason why that happens is because in what's happening in a tornado cash withdrawal is that you're trying to withdraw money in zero knowledge to a completely new address. And so you do not already have funds in that address. So you have no way of paying the transaction fees from an EOA and the money you're trying to withdraw is coming from a contract. And so the transaction has to start from some EOA and that EOA has to be provided by a third party, right? And the real layer is that third party. They just do this as a service in exchange for a fee. Now this is inefficient and it added significant complexity to uh, the Tornado Cash, and it's al- it also adds significant complexity to smart contract wallets. I think it might be the biggest UX barrier that smart contract wallets um, have, uh, and the re- a big reason we don't have more of them is so like Argent, like they basically run their own relay, right? And you know Loopring, well they're a rollup, over, so they're kind of part of the, the solution here. And I got, I'm definitely hoping that Argent is gonna start uh, doing things with uh, rollup soon. Um, but if you have a, any of these uh, wallets, uh, that's uh, a smart contract that's not on layer two, then either you need a relayer or you need this uh, kind of somewhat uh, bulky scheme where you need an account that has most of your assets and then an account that has the rest of your assets to pay fees. And that account has to have quite a bit of ETH just in case transaction fees get very high and so it just gets annoying. Um, So there's uh, two ways of solving this problem. One of them is a kind of (coughs) decentralized general purpose relayer network. And uh, the gas station network is doing a great job of this, Um, but... The other thing is that you can just move to roll-ups and roll-ups can just have better support for just allowing transactions to start from smart contracts directly. So that's the first problem. And then the second problem is the high transaction fees, right? Like, uh, you, you can't have, um, you know, roll-up recoveries cost $50, but you know, in a, uh, layer two system, if everything is done inside of a layer two recoveries could potentially only cost a few cents. Uh, so like in general, like I th- think, the move to layer two is this great opportunity to just do lots of things in a way that's just much better than uh, we, what we've been doing before. Um, you, smart contracts by default are a great mm-hmm. example of this. Uh, I and mean, Optimism have already kind of taken s- uh, some steps in this mm-hmm. direction, um, which is uh, nice. Like I think every account in Optimism is by default a like simple smart contract wallet that can be re- that the user, if they wants, you can replace with a different one. Mm-hmm. Um, Hmm. so yeah again I, there's a there's an excellent synergy between um, lawyer twos and uh, better security
1: so so in, oh sorry go ahead Didn't know I just
2: did. wanted to say I just I I, I do also want to at some point circle back to kind of the relationship between social recovery and uh, crypto values
1: um, maybe we should, that's where we can tie this conversation off but but before we get there I, I do want to ask because that does that mean that your you believe that the trend for the average individual who engages with Ethereum is going to move towards layer two smart contract wallets. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. And and people will just perhaps be able to execute L1 transactions from their layer two smart contract wallet by proxy. So like they'll, they'll make a transaction with their smart contract wallet. And if they want something to happen on chain on the Ethereum L1, it can be initiated from that point.
2: Mm-hmm interesting right well so, so we have to distinguish between like layer one smart like smart contract wallets that are on layer one versus smart contract wallets that are inside of rollups right so like i think smart contract wallets are better either way but like they're definitely much better inside of rollups mm-hmm. and i definitely expect more and more of people to be kind of like uh, over time to move toward being inside rollups natively so just being able to do lots of things and just like do all of the Ethereuming that they want to do just by like floating between, um, you know, Optimism and Arbitrum and ZK Sync and Loopring. And I think we're going to have better and better techniques for moving between those systems without having to hop, hop onto the main chain first. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, and that will also reduce transaction fees massively, which will give an opportunity for this uh, social recovery stuff to happen better.
0: David, our, ki- our kids may not even use the main chain. That's what Vitalik's saying, right? Like they might s- live their whole DeFi Ethereum life on a layer two chain completely.
1: So, well, that kind of begs the question, say I have a smart contract wallet on the L2 and I'm and I'm there because of just the, all the UX benefits that it provides me. Um, and I want to swap tokens for, for one token for another because of whatever reasons that people do that. Um, and the Uniswap L- L1 is perhaps not necessary because on Loopring there is another AMM that because I'm perhaps I'm on the Loopring L2 I just use that uh, exchange feature there instead. So then at, at that point, what does the if if all the economic activity is kind of put into L2s, what does the L1 do? Like what kind of economic activity would you expect to see on the main Ethereum L1 if that becomes the case? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, in the short to medium term, I expect like high value users to stay on L1 just because they, they can afford to pay the fees and uh, they uh, like the fees are a lower cost than the uh, um, the risk that people perceive of um, L2 is breaking. But you know, in the longer term, the risk of um, L2 is breaking is going to subside, and in which case, L1s are mainly going to per- consist of like layer two is publishing these batches and uh, uh, pu- batches and proofs. And like users moving between rollups in some ca- in some cases,
1: that's extremely interesting. That kind of um, makes my my head turn to the whole scaling metaphor of Xbox games, where um, people or Xbox games when the Xbox first came out were like kind of the graphics were rudimentary, the very basic, but then Xbox games towards the end of the Xbox life cycle, and I'm specifically talking about the Xbox 360 here, like the, the, the big Xbox that took off the most amount of time, games towards the end of the Xbox 360 lifestyle were far more efficient, far more uh, graphically like beautiful and complex and rich, but yet it was the same hardware. It was the same hardware all through and through. Uh, and that seems to be kind of how what you are alluding to with the Ethereum l one over time is that we are actually just making better use of the same uh, computational capacity that Ethereum offers. Is, is Is that kind of where you're getting at?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then my other question is um these the, the Ethereum, of course, is a place of Legos. We have, different things, different applications that we can plug into each other. What we're talking about here is the Lego between a smart contract wall and an L2 talking about the efficiencies and UX benefits that we get there. What about the Lego of decentralized identity? How does the combination of decentralized identity and smart contract wallets, how do those things interact?
2: Mm, I guess, a good question, I, uh, I mean, I've talked about identity in uh, a lot of different contexts, I guess. So the uh, question is like, there's different kinds of uh, identity, right? Like there's identity of like you just authenticating yourself as being the same, um, the same actor who did some other interaction previously, which is just like maintaining a persistent account. There's identity as in proving things about who you are in the real world. There is identity as in kind of the unique human problem, creating accounts that like each person can only have one of. And like, those are all uh, like, they are kind of different primitives that have a somewhat different properties. Uh, so I view like social recovery wallets as being like in like a big step forward for the first kind of identity. This kind of maintaining some kind of like persistent ident um, thing that you can represent yourself to um, as to uh, services um, and other people. Uh, so. like and as I mentioned before this is something that like could potentially end up kind of going like even uh, being used for just centralized web2 services right like right now if you log into many services a lot of the time you're logging in with to google or you're logging in with twitter or logging in with facebook and like you're basically using an identity that's controlled by google or twitter or facebook as the uh, mechanism by which you interact with all of these services um, but here, like the thing that I think could eventually happen is people using blockchain social recovery wallets um, or wallets with like some kind of other recovery mechanism of their choice as that identity.? Right? It's like ultimately, if we can create something that's like as secure in terms of like anti- theft and anti loss properties as centralized services uh, provide, which I think we can because I think people overrate how good these centralized services are anyway. Then we uh, can create something that makes sense for even people to use to just interact with um, all of these other things too. Um, so um, I guess yes, you know this stuff is uh, a, a strong path towards solving at least like one of the problems that we that we put in the identity bucket.
0: So Vitalik, um, thanks thanks so much for guiding us through social recovery. Let's let's tie up the discussion with, with this critique. Maybe address the person who's thinking, well, you you just introduced something that I thought blockchain was was going to uh, remove um, this idea of trusting people. Right now we're back to trusting people again, Vitalik. That feels like a betrayal. What's your response to that critique?
2: Right. Uh, So I think this uh, kind of comes uh, like really ties into kind of a difference in perspectives about what, um, you know, crypto is for and like the kind of ideology and vision that different projects have. And I've always interpreted Ethereum as, you know, not being about this kind of mountain man. I'm going to do everything uh, myself mentality. It's more about this idea that, you know, we're going to use like cryptography and economic building blocks, like you know, ETH as uh, the mon- the monetary layer and, and general-purpose code and the ability to write these uh, um, contracts that can control things. And these tools are basically going to empower people to and give them choice in like uh, creating mechanisms, right? And uh, they can empower people to give choice in like whom to trust. Also, giving creating consent strange forms of trust that basically say I trust you to do some things but I don't trust you to do everything Uh, and this is something that I think like we've been seeing in Ethereum more broadly and it's like this big uh, kind of design philosophy right that uh, like it's not about trying to eliminate trust completely. Um, it's about basically saying, well, we have these technological tools and we can create systems that have these uh, much lower levels of trust and we're gonna create, but where trust is still this important ingredient, but we just use it in ways that's uh, um, the, that's that are kind of much more clever. And we can also just uh, like, Right. So like one, minimize it, two, try to use it more um, try to use it more intelligently. And three, as much as possible, give people a choice of like what basically um what trade-offs they take. I mean, like this is a uh, something that like Ethereum is like move, move doing on the the blockchain layer as well, right? Like there's this discussion around proof of stake and weak subjectivity and how proof of stake makes this trade-off that you know if you're logging onto the network for the first time, or if you've been online for like a a, a very long number of months, um, then like you do have to kind of get your view of uh, which uh, chain to follow from uh, from somewhere. And, but the thing that you get in exchange for this is just this vastly more efficient uh, blockchain with a much less uh, resource consumption, right? And I think here at the same time, like, it's also this very similar principle, right? Like it's uh, basically saying that, you know, we're going to be moderate but um, we're also going to say um that just this is this uh, like this is this playground for just building different ways for people to interact with each other and so like let's just actually use it and let's uh, just build really interesting things with it
1: Well, Vitak, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and coming on the program and, and talking about all these various subjects with us. I know that like... Historically, in the, in the past, you would put out a blog post and then people would kind of become woke to it like one or two years later as like, oh, like we finally integrated what Vitalik was talking about, you know, two years ago. And I, I actually hope, I think that I see that there is actually a faster iteration cycle between some of the things that are coming out on your blogs and some of the development that we're actually seeing out in the world of Ethereum and the greater world of crypto. I, I hope that actually some of these conversations that we're putting out on the Bankless Program are, are helping with speed up speeding up that iteration cycle. But anyways, I do totally uh, agree with you that the, the future of 2020 and, and maybe 2021 or that the future of 2021 and beyond is very dominant in the world of, you know, very strong, sexy UX of smart contract wallets, as well as the integration of, you know, the ease of L2s and, and all the other things that you have written on your blog post. So thank you for coming on and, and sharing those ideas with us.
2: Happy to be here. All right, guys,
0: as always, want to end with this. None of this was financial advice. Of course, ETH is risky. So is DeFi. So is crypto. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.